This is Carol. Akuriabe, this is Selena. Welcome to the Peace Corps Tales podcast. This is episode number 10. Woo! We're super excited. Yes. <laughs> this podcast is not affiliated with the U.S. Peace Corps or the U.S. government. All thoughts, opinions, and recollections are for informational purposes only and to allow listeners a chance to hear Peace Corps Tales from Return Peace Corps volunteers. Let's get to our tell today. So today's a little bit different. We're actually going to try to do every 10th episode, a little episode of just me and Carol. And so today's the first one. We've reached our first little mini milestone of hopefully many. <laughs> so I'm super stoked. Uh, we have a few questions that me and Carol will just answer personally. It'll, of course, be about our experiences and not a general concept. So please don't take it as this is what it's going to be like everywhere else. Because even we, as we've been interviewing all these other volunteers, we've noticed just how different it has been by country by country. So please take this again with a grain of salt and just enjoy, if you want to, a hearing about our different experiences regarding these other questions that we haven't answered yet. We're the host and we've introduced ourselves in the beginning, but just for a refresher, for those of you who are just hopping in, I'm Selena and I served in Madagascar from 2015 to 2018 and I was a health volunteer. I'm Carol. I also served in Madagascar the same years with Selena. I was also a health volunteer, but we live in different regions in the country. I was in a small coastal town per se. I was about 80 miles from the southeast coast in Madagascar in a small town called Kenjavatu. I remember thinking you were like kind of crazy for staying at your site because my mentality was I was going to take my extension as like a baby step towards reintegrating back into the States. <laughs> so my goal was to go into like a city format in order to like just kind of see that kind of life again instead of being in like a rural city then going home which actually i guess i am curious because you stayed in the rural city and then we went on our cos trip for a few weeks so you had some time to integrate to like city life again in a sense but what was it like like once you got home because i don't i don't recall if we actually ever really talked about integration back in the states or back in columbia for you because you did go back to the states for a little bit i think but then you went home to your columbia so what was that like for you because you went from like drastic rule like forever and like <laughs> huge community like very close to then going back to somewhere where you didn't necessarily have a community at the moment even though madagascar is uh, thousands of kilometers away from colombia there is a lot of familiarities and a lot of similarities between the two countries and i just felt home there so coming back even though i felt home like here coming back was extremely difficult i actually took six months of just being home uh, being home, staying at my, my parents' house, because being outside, it was really hard. Um, we actually, as soon as I got here, we went to this mall because I think I needed glasses. My eyesight got a, a little bit tired, especially being on the computer. So I was like, oh, I need glasses. So my mom took me to the mall and just seeing the amount of lights just hurt my eyes. Literally, like my eyes got watery because it was just too much. And for those who never seen Bogota, Bogota is, a, is the capital in Colombia, and we are about 9 million people here in the city. So the smoke is terrible. Traffic jams are like um, the daily thing that you have to deal with. Sometimes you can spend two hours in a traffic jam. And just the amount of people you see constantly in every single street. So just dealing with that at the beginning was like super overwhelming. Just getting to the airport and seeing my parents picking me up and then coming to this new house because when I left, I left Colombia many years ago and throughout the years they have changed houses. Uh, but I came to a, this new house where we are right now and just he, being here at this house, I was like, wow, my room has more lights than I ever had in Madagascar for three years. So just those little details were really, really hard to deal with. Food-wise, I remember going to this restaurant and I almost cried because the flavor was so good. I was like, oh my God, I forgot how flavorful the food can be. Because even though I love Madagascar and some of the food, uh, it's really not that tasty. <laughs> so coming back to all those things was extremely overwhelming. I honestly took six months of just like 
being home, it was almost like grieving the fact that I had left Madagascar and I had left my life of three years because I gave my 100% and I love every single moment of it. So just removing myself from my community and like leaving my adopting parents and like my ex-boyfriend and all the life that I had built and just coming back and like being back to zero, even though I had started from zero many, many times in my life, this time was really, really hard because I didn't know when I will get the chance to go back to Madagascar. Like when I left Colombia, I knew I would always come back because my family is here. So I knew, you know, it was easier for me to come back to Colombia from the States. Uh, but coming from Madagascar, it was like, honestly, like grieving. It, it took me a long time. And even today I talk to about Madagascar almost every day. Anytime I get a chance, uh, it's very, very inside my heart still. So, yeah. Yeah. And that is just atones to how different our experiences was because though I loved my experience in Madagascar, I never got attached to it, I can say. And I don't want to sound cold hearted or anything. It's just like I did have a community. I did go out there and make friends and everything. And there were a few people that I deeply miss and I do want to go back and see eventually one day. But I just definitely did not get as attached yeah. as Carol did for sure because I remember when we left, I was just so excited to go on our COS trip where I was like, let's go. Let's. I am so ready to leave. Like I just did three years here. I'm so ready for some like more like fancier like housing in a sense because we were going to La Reunion and we were going to go where there's like cars. We were going to be able to drive again. Like I was just so gung-ho ready to like let's go and explore and do as much as we can before I have to go back to reality in the States. And then even – my transition in the States, though, went extremely smooth where I had grad school. So I think it's just because I had that goal. So I had been I had been granted to go start grad school. And I knew that as soon as I landed in the States, I was going to have a month or a month and a half before I started grad school. So I knew right away it was going to be me pretty much having to buy everything because I was moving out of my house. I was going to a different city than like where I my parents lived because it would have been too far. So I had to find an apartment that was a little stressful. But then like everything just kind of like lined up for me where I'm a part of a fraternity called Zeta Ta'afa and they actually had a house in the college that I was going to that had a, sp a room available. And so they offered it for me and that was like such a blessing because then it was like cheaper than normal rent everywhere else and I had this huge apartment to myself like it was amazing. And so like just having those connections and knowing that like going back home I was kind of taken care of in a sense where like I had the connection for the apartment and then like school and then of course my parents house before I could even move into the apartment and so we were able to go shopping and buy what I needed and so it was just like a blur of activity just trying to get me to grad school and then once I got to grad school then it's just like a blur of activity of like trying to like survive and study and try to get back to that mentality of like oh shit I have to try like <laughs> oh crap like I need to be on my game like People have expectations. I need to write a little bit better when I was speaking in elementary level, like for the past three years, like, <laughs> but it never shell shook me. Like I was never like, oh my God, like this is too overwhelming or whatever. I think it's because I always had something else in front of me pushing me. So I never really had a grieving period for Madagascar, I feel, because everything was just kind of thrown at me and I knew I had to just keep going. And so for me, it was just like, okay, I landed and remember on the plane when we were in Morocco, it was our last trip together. We had like, I think eight days or 10 days left together. And it was right when we landed into Morocco, I was told that I got a scholarship. Oh yeah, you were super excited. I remember that, yes, yes. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, when you do Peace Corps, you get a certain amount of like savings in a sense that Peace Corps gives you per month of your service. It's called re uh, readjustment allowance. And so this can vary from like, it's always like a couple hundred USD that accumulates every month. And then once you COS and close your service, they then give it to you in a lump sum. So however many months you completed, you then get this lump sum. Since me and Carol did three years, we got a pretty good chunk, um, I will say. And I used about half of it on our COS trip. And I was like, no shits given. Like, I want to go explore as much as I can. Like, I don't care. So I had to look for scholarships for grad school because luckily I was also, I stayed in the state that I grew up in. So I was given a grant for grad school. So I didn't worry about that. But the rest of that scholarship paid for the difference. And I just remember feeling like 
so happy. Like I just got told like I could get an apartment from my fraternity. And then I was like told I got a scholarship as well that would pay for the difference. And I was like, so ready for school. Like I was like, yes, it's going to literally be free because that was my goal. My goal is to have grad school be free and not have to pay for it because I was already in debt as an undergrad. And so I was like, I don't want to accumulate it. Like I have to do this some way to find out free and it worked out and I'm so happy it did. But like, because of that, like <laughs> I remember I met with an RPCV who was from Madagascar as well here at like near LA and <laughs> she, like we were just chatting. She was actually selling the chocolate, you know, what's it called? The Malagas or something? No, Maca, Maca, Maca this, something like that. I don't know. We can look it up. Yeah, I've seen it in like, they're more in the like fancier stores, like what's it called? Trader Joe's and stuff, you know, that sells the fancier chocolate that's more organic or something. So she was going into, was it a whole? As a brand ambassador, maybe? Yeah, she was a brand ambassador. I forgot what store we were in. I think it was Whole Foods. No, not Whole Foods. It, yeah, is that what it's called? Anyway, so she was there and I went to go visit her and just like chatting with her, like shooting the wind while she's like trying to sell chocolate and give samples and stuff. And we were talking about, I've been back for probably two months now, or no, three months at that time. And she just like, they set me up with her because it was like the LA uh, RPCV group that like set us to, up together because they know I just kind of came back to the States. And so it was reintegrating. And a lot of people have a hard time reintegrating, I will say. Like I've met a good chunk of people and especially like Carol just said, she was in a grieving process for six months that had a really hard time coming back to the States, whether it be they couldn't find work, um, they just were uncomfortable, like everything was just so different than what they were used to and they felt lost in a sense. And I luckily never had to deal with those emotions or feel that way but I remember talking with her and she was just like I was like saying like yeah I just started dating this guy like we're good and like grad school's going fine I got a job on my campus and like I'm gonna start an internship in a moment like I was just like all these things that she was just like wow like you've integrated so well she's like you have no problem like you're fine and I was like yeah I guess yeah I am <laughs> Yeah, because I remember you were going through all this, like, uh, for our listeners, Selena and I talk pretty much every day, or at least once a day, we text for whatever reason, especially now with the podcast, we are more connected than ever. But even back then, we were constantly in communication. And I remember her telling me like all the details about her life. And I was obviously very proud and very thankful that she was going through that. Well, I was crying my eyes out here <laughs> because I was, you know, like so nostalgic about how simple my life was and how much I love my host parents and how much I love working with the people that I got to work with and just crying about me remembering my baby. We already talked about this. I didn't have a baby, but I was like an adopted baby that uh, I had on my side, you know, like remembering she coming to my house, like every single detail in my life. It was just so around Madagascar while Selena was just like moving on so easily, you know, starting out this brand new chapter of her life. And I was just stuck in mine. Not that neither one is worse or better than the other. It's just to show you guys how life is so different before, during and after service. How you can either be super adjusted in your community and how that can be very hard to come back. Or you can still be very connected to your community and still have an easy transition. So this is just to show you that there is no two services alike. And every single person is just going to live a whole different uh, experience. And I wouldn't change anything. You know, I, I wouldn't change my grieving. I wouldn't change all, uh, all the tears that I cried. I did cry for almost three months before I left site. Like I knew the day that I was going to leave. And like starting March, I remember specifically because I had it on my, on my calendar. I cried every day for three months and I'm a crier. So it's not like I was dehydrating myself but on tears, but yeah, it was really hard. And I think seeing Selena so calm also helped me, you know, because if she had been a mess, then I wouldn't be in a bigger mess. But being that she was so confident about what her future was coming for her, like was going to bring her, it was kind of calming and be like, okay, I know we'll get to that point my route is just going to be a little bit more difficult to get to with ups and downs, a little bit more drastic than hers. But I knew that I was going to get to that point. But 
yeah, it, it's just, I don't know, it, it, everything was so different at that time too. And the funny thing is that after the, the six month break, this job that I got in Panama, it, granted it was almost like it fell from the sky. It was through uh, another RPCV from Madagascar. And I ended up doing kind of like the same job as a Peace Corps volunteer, but in a six month period. And instead of being the volunteer, I was just like the all the um, staff members of a Peace Corps office in one person. It was very challenging, but it was nice that I had that opportunity. It was like an extension of my service for six more, more months in, in Panama. So I don't know, like even though coming back was really hard, I'm thankful that I did take those six months to just like feel whatever I needed to feel. I am thankful that I have my parents that were extremely supportive. Like I didn't have to go out and look for a job to pay rent. I could come home and just relax and be and be sure that I was going to be taken care of for the time I needed. So that, that was really nice too. Yeah, and I remember we would communicate, like as you said, like every day. And I would constantly be telling you, like, give yourself a break. Because I remember you were just feeling so guilty where you're like, I'm not working. I feel like I have no purpose. Like, I don't want to just be like a couch potato in a sense, even though you weren't like you were still trying to figure out your life. But I just remember you were just being so hard on yourself. And I was constantly just saying, like, take this time because like, when are you ever going to have time like that again where you just don't need to do something in a sense yeah I just remember trying to like convince you in a sense to be a little easier on yourself but going with this though what do you think your largest challenge was during service oh I, it's hard like before we started this episode I thought about it but I haven't really pinpoint a challenge per se I think for me it's because I'm very hard on myself so I think um maybe at the beginning where I couldn't communicate just that that communication part was really hard for me. I just wanted to go from the get-go and being able to say whatever I had in mind and start doing projects. Because since we come from the States with the mentality of being productive and like having something to do all the time, and then you find yourself with so much free time and really trying to figure out life, I think trying to find that balance of like, okay, I'm learning, I'm getting used to my new town, I'm getting used to... Uh, this lifestyle, I'm getting used to learning to work with these people because every single thing that you go through in Peace Corps is a, a learning curve. From learning the language to getting to know your coworkers, everything is like, and it's a long process. And I think coming with this mentality of like, you have to be productive and you have to be productive and you have to show results and just having to stop and just realize that life in Madagascar is just not going to be the same. You're not going to get projects done in a month. You're not going to you're not going to achieve whatever goals or expectations that you possibly had. It's going to take a while. I think that was the biggest at the beginning where I just need to like step back and be like, "Okay, this is just going to take a long time to process all this and be able to talk to people and get things going. I think that was the biggest challenge. I, I really, really tried to, um, I really wanted to be fluent in Malagasy as soon as possible. So I think also that um, my anxiety, not anxiety, but like my, I don't know, my eagerness to be like super good in Malagasy and not happening as fastest as I wanted to at the beginning. I think that was another challenge. And then with the time I was just like, okay, I just need to let go and I, I'm going to learn it at the speed I'm going to learn it, and that's fine too. So I think those are two challenges. What about you? Uh, for me, it was definitely the language. Like even at the end of the third year, I knew enough to have a conversation, but it still wasn't an in-depth conversation. And I think I always just was so saddened that my language never got to the level that I was hoping it would get. And I know it's partly my fault is because like I was very self-conscious you know, when you meet Malagasy people, it's either they're really nice and they're just like, oh, my God, you know, Malagasy so well and they work with you or they meet you and you say like one word wrong and they're like, you don't know how to speak Malagasy and they just like tease the shit out of you forever. So <laughs> I think it was a little hard because like for my first two years, I was in one dialect and I will say in Madagascar, we're very lucky. We're all dialects. They still know Malagasy official and they still understand words for the most part. They all blend together. It's not like other African countries where you have like 20 different dialects and they're actually different languages in a sense. Like we don't have that. Like Malagasy was like one language across the board with slight differences for words here and there. So wherever you go, you could pretty much communicate to some extent. Um, 
you just have to tweak it a little bit, work a little harder, whatever. But I remember going to my third year extension and there was just like three different dialects that I had not learned, nor had I spoken. And I kind of gave up, I will say, where like I spoke when I could and I talked and I still try to learn it. And I learned some new words because I had to, of course, for like vegetables and fruits and just to buy things here and there or how to get like a poos poos, which is like a bicycle taxi. But I just remember kind of giving up where I'm just like, well, you know what? I don't know if I want to put this much mental effort to learn another three dialects and communities that I'm only in part time. And I would try to work on the language, but then I remember sometimes I would just sit quiet. Like I wouldn't really try. And that disappointed me. Like that was a huge challenge to me where I kind of just, instead of embracing it and really pushing myself, I was like, now I'm just going to accept my level of Malagasy. And I kind of just gave up and I will admit that. And it's kind of a bummer, but then I'm also like, okay with it and it said it's where like I was still able to do my job to the best of my ability I was still able to communicate I still had fun with my coworkers and was there for them and try to help them but another challenge was just like working with NGO <laughs> staff members uh not the people in the office but those who worked out in the field so they were pretty much the equivalent of Peace Corps volunteers but Malagasy individuals and <laughs> So the Malagasy populace, like how they learn is very much about memorization. Like you learn something, you memorize it, that is it. You don't really use critical thinking in a sense to kind of see like, is this true? How can I use it in a different sense? What have you? And I remember working with working with one of my staff members and kind of like telling her because she was doing a nutritional lesson and I did that all the time. But now we were in the South where water is very short. There's not a lot of vegetables. It's very hard to get certain things. Um, and she was teaching about carrots and how like it's the best thing for your baby and like it's the best thing for their eyes and it has the best amount of vitamin A and you need to get carrots and you need to eat them and this and that. And I remember afterwards trying to have a conversation with her because that was my job was pretty much like critique, see if they're doing their training correctly and help them out when I could. And I told her, I was like, you know what? Next time, don't talk about carrots. I was like, talk about papaya. Talk about pumpkin because it's nearby. Like those are what they can get. They can't get carrots around here, but they can get those. And she like fought me where she was just like, well, it says it's carrots. So I'm going to say carrots. That's the best way. And I'm like, yes, I understand. But there are other areas that you can go to that are around this region that you can suggest them to get. And I was like trying to help her understand like these individuals can't reach what you're preaching. So they're not going to do it. But if you do something something that is in within reach, then they'll do it. And she just constantly was firing me, constantly rebuttal. And in the end, I ended up having to just step back and say, okay, you do what you think is right. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to lose this battle. And I think that was just like another one of like them trying to trust what I know or trying to get them to trust me in a sense of saying like, I do know what I'm talking about. I do understand what you learned. I'm here to help you out. And that was like a huge one. And I know that those are mainly in like my extension of challenges, but I think that does resonate the most because it went from being so comfortable at my site to then being thrown into this environment where like I had no community. It was completely new. People knew what I was supposed to do because there was a Peace Corps volunteer before me who helped them. And my language was surprisingly better than hers, I guess, because they always said, but <laughs> definitely wasn't well because like I just like stopped trying to speak. Yeah, I just remember I think my third year was the hardest in a sense, even though it was my way to integrate back to the States a little easier. It definitely was probably the biggest challenge of my service was trying to like assimilate, make a community and also get my coworkers to understand that like I can help you if you let me. Yeah. To all our listeners, don't think that Peace Corps life is just full of trips and, you know, wonderful life in the middle of nowhere. There is definitely a lot of challenges. Maybe right now it's hard for us to go back and think about all those challenges, either small or big. Uh, we're just scratching the surface about challenges, you know, like I honestly cannot think of anything else at this very moment. But be sure that life is a roller coaster of emotions every day from how you feel to the challenges to the people that you deal with. So good advice. And it's just be prepared, honestly. Like, don't take this decision slightly. Don't think that it's just going to be a good adventure after college or a good break in your life. If that's the mentality, maybe you should rethink about it. <laughs> because 
I, I feel like sometimes people think Peace Corps is, um, is just a paid vacation for two years. I don't know. That's just a personal, my personal point of view. And I'm sure a lot of people don't think that way. And I'm sure that's not how a lot of volunteers go into service. But I've seen some cases like that. And that's when you get a little bit discouraged of like Peace Corps is something to be taken very, very seriously because it not only changes you as a person and in the, prof the professional field, but you're also going to another community and you be you need to be respectful. So I think we're sharing this just for you to have a bigger picture of what Peace Corps is about, you know. There is so many layers and we can, and I guess that's exactly why we're doing this. So you can hear all the layers <laughs> about what life is um, in a foreign country and like all the challenges and that you face on the daily. I would say even then something happens and then you are either super happy for the rest of the day or you are either super miserable and then something else happens and that changes your mood again. So I think it's just daily, you know, hourly, where you feel like everything is so emphasized, like every single emotion and every single, every single thing that it could potentially happen either in the States or Colombia, or whatever, but there is just magnified to a level that you, you would have never thought it was possible. Yeah, to go with your point, it is true, though, because you're there to do a job in a sense, mm -hmm, though exactly. you are a volunteer. It is like a job. And I won't say it's absolutely wrong to go in with the mentality of like it's like a break from life or a vacation because honestly, I did partly have that mentality, Carol. Like I'll admit, I did have partly that mentality, but I also had the extreme mentality that I wanted to get shit done where I wanted to do something for my community. I wanted to make sure to make an impact. I didn't leave my community all that often and we only did vacations pretty much after conference and that's what I allowed myself to do. And so I was very dedicated, but I also took it as a chance to really immerse and learn a different culture because that was mainly why I was going. But for those of you, Peace Corps is a 24-7 job. You may not think you're being watched. Don't ever think that because you are always being watched. Even if like maybe you can blend in with the populace or not, like people will know that you're American, those especially close to you, and they'll be watching you because they want to know your mannerism. They want to know what an American is like. And you're just new, you're fresh, you're different, and they will constantly be watching you. <laughs> you're being watched all the time. Yeah. And because of that, you really need to watch what you do because then that is the mentality that they will then have of Americans. And that's why it is like a 24-7 job because you are not just representing yourself. Like it's no longer about you. You are representing what people think an American is like. And that's why it is kind of hard. And I feel like people don't always understand that. And they're just like, oh, whatever. Like I'm just here to do my service and I can leave whenever I want or I can drink as much as I want or whatever. And true, you can. Like it's it's your life. It's your choice. But just be mindful that like there are people watching you and they do want to know what Americans are like and they will think whatever you portray is that because they will only get you as an example. Um, maybe they'll get one or two other volunteers. But again, that's what three people out of like millions and millions of populace. So going on that, though, like what was social life like for you, Carol? I know at my life, social life was having a little like. 12 year old come to my house and bombard into my life like every day ask me if I needed water ask me if I needed groceries because like she wanted snacks and so she knew that like if she helped me out a little bit we would go buy snacks and so it was just like having this little like preteen come into my life who's taller than me mind you she was like taller than me super skinny like she could have been a model <laughs> like i swear and i just remember like being like so bizarre like oh my god this child will never leave me alone like <laughs> and they in social life to me was like hanging out with her trying to entertain her she was so hard to talk to because she was also very quiet where like I would try to talk to her and I'm like, I thought you were here to help me with my language, if anything. Like, why are you here? <laughs> and we would have conversations, but then it would just go quiet. And I'm like, okay, what can we do? So I did like arts and crafts with her a lot because like I love doing that. And she she enjoyed it. I feel like we had fun. But I remember she also caused me like a huge amount of like anxiety where I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with this child. Like <laughs> 
<laughs> but I guess like once my project was between the project is when I finally fully had like a schedule of like social life. So my social life would be like when I woke up, I would go to my little milk like store. So I go to my little milk store, eat some mufugas, which is like a rice bread with a glass of milk. That would be my breakfast chat with the like Pivanitra, which is the salesperson and just like shoot the wind because she was one of the mothers I was actually working with. And so it was fun because like I'd have that for breakfast. Then I would go and like hang out with another one of my coworkers. We'd go to like a community and like teach or do something. And then I'd come back. I would then sometimes go to lunch with my site mate. So I had a site mate and he lived about like five minutes away from me. So we'd go get lunch at the local like hotel and like eat and just like hang out for like a good couple hours. And then um, I would go back to my home and pretty much just be alone at that point, which was fine with me. I like being alone. <laughs> I have found out. I, I do enjoy being alone. But sometimes if that didn't happen, I would go hang out with like the dentist's wife near me and I'd have dinners with them and just talk with them or I'd talk with my nurse um, whenever she'd have new kittens because I wanted to go see them. Like, But I didn't really have like social life like what you think in the States by far. It was more of like those little like conversations. I would go to another Pivanicha that was near me that sold like beans and had her own little hotel and I would go and just chat with her and eat her food. It wasn't like the best food because there was like one hotel that was really good and then hers was like definitely not to par but I loved her because she she was like such a great support and though she was she wasn't one of my coworkers, she was still a community health worker that helped me communicate with others when I needed her to because she was like right next door to me and so like if I had to like leave town all of a sudden or something I would like tell her like please spread the word and Malagasy communication status is like on par because I don't even know what they do but they're just like you tell it to someone and all of a sudden everyone like miles away without a phone knows and I'm just like okay cool like I know I'll get out there <laughs> I think my life social life was very different from yours <laughs> I'm a very sociable person I think too much when my family came and they we came back like when I came back home they constantly say or talk about when they came to my side and like they say that it looked like a Disney movie where the princess goes down the road and just says hi to everybody. Okay, mine was like that too, I will admit. <laughs> yeah. There are so many people that you could say hi to because they all want to know the bazaar. Like yours was different though because you looked like one of them or a mixed taste. So they're just like, ah, she's one of us. Like, let's just say hi to her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to our listeners, I'm really not that dark. But when I was there, I got really, really tan. So I have curly hair. So something kind of look a little bit, just a tiny bit. So I could be like a mestiz, like a mix of a, a foreign person married to a Malagasy person and me being the child, just to give a pers perspective of what we're talking about here. But anyways, going back to social life, I had a very, very active social life. I started with my coffee in the morning with my Pivarucha, my coffee seller. So I will go visit her, have my coffee, my mufu, just like Selena, stay there for hours. Um, if she needed to do something, I would take care of her little coffee stand while she was running errands, and then she would come back. Um, I had a really good relationship with the doctor at my local clinic. So sometimes I will go and have dinner with her and just chat for hours. I have a lot of neighbors, so I either, I, especially at the beginning of service when I'm trying to get my language better, so I will just sit with people and just start asking questions and just listen to them. That was a great way to not only improve my language, but also just have people know who I was. Um, my adopted family was like one house down my my door. So I will always go hang out with them. If I, if I was bored, I would just go sit with them because they had like a little business in their house, so like selling all kinds of things from bike parts to rice, eggs, soap, whatever you can think of. So if my mom wasn't available or dad was busy, I was taking care of their business. So I was there all the time. I had really good friends. Like it's different because the level of communication, at the, especially at the beginning, was a little bit hard. So I, like Selena, I couldn't have like deep conversations at the beginning. But towards the end, I did have very deep conversations with a lot of people that I met. So I had a couple of friends, Armin in Georgia. Uh, Armin was the first person that ever came to my stop, uh, my door and be like, hey, I want to be your friend because she had been friends with uh, prior volunteers. 
So she was a little bit used to like talking to foreigners in a way that she, even though her Managasi was really hard for me at the beginning, I was able to like communicate with her because she got me. Like she understood, you know, where I was coming from. And then through her, I met Georgia. And then through both of them, I met my ex-boyfriend who I, you know, I spent almost three years of my life with him. Uh, and then his family became my, my family. I was very close with the mayor. He was like a really good counterpart. So like I had a lot of very well-rounded relationships from like friendship to um, counterparts. And like uh, there is this kind of NGO on my site and the person who runs it, her name is Natalie. She's a very well-educated woman. She's actually in France right now doing her PhD. So we were able to connect very, very well. We have very good conversations. I will go to her house, have lunch. We will go on hikes. We actually took a couple of trips that she invited me to. So it was really nice. I, I did get to experience all that. I, I did get to um, build relationships that were uh, that went a little bit more than a high and how is your day. And then with my ex-boyfriend's family, uh, they were also very nice. I felt that I became part of their family for the time I was there. And then obviously when I formed my, my group of girls, they also became my friends. They were constantly at my house. We spent a lot of time, a lot of time, sometimes too much time together. <laughs> and I, I almost forgot, like, I, I think obviously during my episode, I mentioned how much I love Women's Day, not only because the celebration itself was fantastic, but because it gave me another opportunity to connect to all these women. I got to hang out with all of them a lot of, like, a lot of hours throughout this month. So that was another way to build all these connections. And then I also, I'm not really religious, I'm not a religious person, but my house was literally like five meters away from the Catholic church. It was like almost my doorstep. So some days I either had to wake up super early to go up to my latrine and my shower to be ready. Otherwise, I will have to parade in front of all the churchgoers. I was like, Ugh, what do I want to do? So sometimes I would just hide in my house until like 12. <laughs> So people wouldn't see me like in PJs, you know, like leaving my house. And it got to a point I was like, okay, I'm waking up early because I can I cannot be at my house until noon without going to the bathroom. So I decided to start going to church. And I found out it was a really good way to connect people with the people in my town. They kind of saw me in a different way when I started going to church. Not that I was a better person, but I think they saw that I was taking the time to get to know that part of them because Catholicism is very big in Madagascar, even though it's kind of funny to me that they go to church and then they're getting drunk in the afternoon. But that's a whole different story. But, you know, like waking up, going there, uh, sharing mass, and like just seeing me in church, I think they saw me a little bit different, a little bit like more communal in a sense yeah for a little clarification a laduce is a showering area um and a cabernet is like a squatter toilet area i remember being very i got a lot of anxiety going to my own cabernet so my cabernet was in the middle of the hospital so i lived at the hospital in my town or they called it a hospital it's really like a healthcare center and i lived within it and I would have to literally walk through the whole thing in order to go use the restroom. So I remember there was a lot of times where like maybe I was lazy and stayed in bed until like seven. And then all I could think about was like, crap, I have to go walk to the restroom now with all these people who are going to stare at me because there's always a line of people at the health center. There's always something happening, always they needed help. And it just atones to how different our service really was because like you were able to make close relationships with your doctor, your mayor, and a bunch of other people on your site. And like for me, it was like the complete opposite where the mayor didn't care that I was there. He just met me because he had to and he just wanted the funds for his community and just like the bragging points I feel of saying like we have a volunteer. My doctor didn't care about being at the health center. So he was gone as much as he could be. So he could be in Fianartsua, which is the the banking town or the city that was nearest to us because he would rather be there because he had a home over there and so he'd rather be there than be in our like smaller rural 
uh, town of Mahashu Bay. And I just remember like losing so much respect for the leadership in this community because they honestly didn't care about their community. And I was just so thankful that the nurse like worked her butt off trying to really help as many people as she could. Like she had to be the doctor and the nurse. And they were of course understaffed and it was just fantastic seeing like what she could do and how hard she worked. And that is the reason why I never really got close to her though, because she was so busy. Like she didn't, like we couldn't really like communicate and do things. And like, I ended up just focusing on doing like nutritional and wash trainings outside of my little like smaller city. And that again, didn't make us any closer either, but it just is so different, like how you were able to get that like support. And that's what Peace Corps hopes for. Like Peace Corps hopes that the town will be there to support you and help you and whatever you're trying to do for that community. And unfortunately, my experience atones to it. It's not always the case. And it is interesting where like I still had to get permission from the mayor for certain things and me just kind of like to myself rolling my eyes like this guy doesn't care. Like why do I have to ask him for permission to do something where he just literally does not care? Like I remember we went in his office and he had like all these fancy chairs and like it was just like him pretending to be a king in a sense. And I just remember being like, okay, like please tell me you do something for this community. <laughs> Well, I do have to clarify, when I first got to my site, we had a mayor that was just like yours. He didn't care. He spent most of his time in Fenaratsua, which is like an eight-hour bus ride from my site. So I saw him the day that I got to my town, and that was it. But then the election came soon after that. I think that was the same year that I, I was at site. And so the new mayor was the person that I got really close to uh, because he's from the area. And he was, at that point, he was the director at the Catholic school. So was, he was already very involved in the community. And he actually got reelected this year because he's done a fantastic job. And um, when when I was there, because there is the mayor and they're like the first assistant. And, and right before I was coming home, the first assistant was like, okay, Carol, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, you're going to marry Jovial, my ex-boyfriend, so you can get your Malagasy citizenship. So you can become a mayor. I'm like, okay, this is stretching uh, reality a little bit too much. But that, I felt also very like warm when he said that because it, it showed that they really appreciate what I have done for the town. And I do feel lucky. Like, honestly, I did get a lot of luck with my town. Like, I understand like a lot of communities are not like that, especially when you're in a bigger city or like a bigger town. Yours was much bigger than mine. So getting that kind of connection and support is really not easy, especially when there's a lot of people involved. I did go to a small community. It wasn't super small. It was like about 1,500 people. But, you know, it's small enough that I could make a lot of connections. And I do feel got lucky. Like, I, it's not easy to find a community when you find so much support. And my doctor, she worked a lot. She was always there. So, again, it, it, it's different because my doctor was all the time at site, unless she had a conference or something, which they always do. They always have different mini meetings. She was always there working her butt off. Which I think is great that we got so close and we can, we wanted to do like this podcast because then it kind of shows just how different experiences can be so close together. Cause you were, you were in like a different region, but not really. Like you were still somewhat close to like what I was experiencing because you were kind of in the middle ground of being like all the way to the coast to being in the highlands. And just like our experiences as a whole are like, I feel like a 180 where it's just like, <laughs> They're just so different, but I think it's great because then we can just talk about how different they can be and how contrast services can be, even though you're not that far from each other or you're really close or similar in personality in a sense, and yet it still happens like this. <laughs> we can talk for hours about every single question. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know. So I'm very thankful that we're going to do like every 10th milestone with us because <laughs> we love reminiscing. And we're hoping that if you guys do have any questions for us, you can always contact us at peacecoretales at gmail.com. And that's fully spelled out. So peacecoretales at gmail.com. And you can totally just shoot us questions so that when we do these kind of milestone interviews of just her and I, we can definitely answer anything that you guys have and kind of like have you guys be involved in our podcast as well. 
But for the last area, this is something like I do want to talk about. It's safety. So I know a lot of people question if Peace Corps is safe, how they like keep volunteers safe or just going in a country you're by yourself. Like, will you actually be safe or feel safe or especially as a woman going there traveling alone? Like, is it worth it in a sense? And so I did want to kind of talk about this. So Carol, you can start by how you felt about safety within Madagascar. I think I'm going to be biased here a little bit, just because I do come from a country where violence is very prevalent. Uh, I do come from a city that is huge. So pickpocketers are a thing. Thieves and death is a daily thing that we have to face. Actually, when I came back, not when I came back, but during the pandemic, I went to do grocery shopping and I came back to my car. The window had been busted and a couple of things were stolen from my car. But, you know, like it's something that is in our daily life. So I, I had already had like developed this kind of surveillance technique, I guess. I remember during training, we had this safety and security person teaching teaches this ridiculous song about safety. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but anyways, to be vigilant and all that. And I do have that because I do come from a city that is sort of dangerous and there is neighborhoods where you can really, yeah, you shouldn't be there and you shouldn't be out late at night by yourself, especially if you're a woman. So a lot of things do apply to the things that we were told during training. Uh, so I already had those. But uh, with that being said, um, I never felt threatened. I never felt that was in danger, um, basically because we were really good at following the training that was given by Peace Corps about, you know, don't go to these areas and don't don't put yourself in danger by like being stupid and drinking and being in the, in red zones or like taking public transportation that you shouldn't be taking. A lot of things that to me just make sense, but a lot of people that are not used to may sound like, oh, what do I have to do that, right? I just want to clarify real fast. A red zone, I don't know if other countries use this terminology and I don't know if it's like across Peace Corps as a whole, but for Madagascar... Uh, it was called red zoned when there's like different cities within Madagascar that was not safe for a volunteer. And so they would red zone them because either some incident had happened or it was unsafe or there was civil unrest in a sense. And thus we were advised as volunteers to make sure to stay away from those areas, not travel through them. Um, even if we were in a group, just to kind of like stay away. And that's what a red zone is. And there's even areas like within the capital itself that were red zoned because that was known for having like higher levels of theft, uh, just being at risk kind of thing. And so they would advise us to just stay away in a sense. Of course, did we follow it all the time? No. no. <laughs> and we have a story about that, but we did try to at least most of the time. <laughs> at my side, my specific site, um, I felt very safe. Um, there was an incident, actually, now that I think about it. Somebody had stolen my backpack from my room. And then a few days later, I found out it was the guard. <laughs> Ironically enough, it was the guard for the health center. He saw that my window my it was open. I had bars, but my window itself was open. So he reached and found the bag and took it. And then I saw it because he had given it to his brother. And I was like, Norbert, who gave you that bag? He's like, oh, I found it. I was like, no, that's my bag. So he gave it to me. And then I found out the whole thing. But on my side, I never felt like, you know, uh, insecure or like that my life was in danger. Never, ever. Um, there was a lot of emphasis about like when you take public transportation and like at the bus stations because there is a lot of people, so many people, and obviously the thieves are like in the lookout for the weakest link. So that's where you have to be extremely vigilant, especially when you're giving back your luggage. That's when you have to be very, very careful. And thankfully, nothing ever happened to me. I think Selena had her phone stolen a couple times in a bus station. That never happened to me. I do have to say, though, that one time in Tana, and this is because we went to a red zone. There is this part of town that is a, it's basically a huge flea market. I think that's the best way to describe it, where you can find absolutely everything. And mind you, we were traveling overseas the next day. So I, I was vigilant. I had my purse very close to my body. I was constantly checking out that people weren't too close to me. I was constantly making sure I had all my belongings with me, you know, making sure my bag was complete, whatever. 
And so we're going through this part of town uh, looking for FRIP, which is the second-handed clothes that you can buy for a very reasonable price on the streets. And so my friend, it was Selena, Heather, I think it was the three of us that we were at the red, in the red zone in Anna Anna Kelly. Yeah, it was just us there. And uh, my friend Heather wanted to buy something for the trip. So she asked me if I could lend her some money. I was like, yes, of course. So I opened my bag and I'm looking for my wallet and it's gone. And I started freaking out because... Stupid me, I had taken all of our passports. I think we had just gone to the Peace Corps office to pick up the passports. But it was just you and mine. It was just you and my passport. And the reason why this is important is because the next day we were leaving to Mauritius yeah. to go on a vacation. And that, that's like outside of Madagascar. It's another small island next to it. And we were going with Heather and Max. Like that's where we were going on this vacation for New Year's. And you were in the middle of us. Like the whole time. It was like Heather was in front. You were in the middle. I was behind you. And I remember you had your bag like tucked into the side of your arm. You were constantly trying to be vigilant. Like slightly angled more closely to the front of you I was behind you like trying to watch like I don't know how this child did it I don't know either just they're really good (laughs) so good anyways so Heather is buying wanting to buy this thing she is asking me for money I was like okay trying to reach to my wallet I can't find it next thing I know somebody had slashed my bag with a knife and somehow they just took I had a lot of things in my bag, and the only thing that they took was my pocket Kelly, which is a wallet, where I had my money, my debit card for the bank, and Selena and my passports. And you know what was so lucky, though? Like, because my wallet was in your bag as well. I remember being like, oh, my God, is mine still there? And it was. So it was just like a quick grab and go, and yours happened to be in that corner of the bag. And... The story, though, how we got it back, it's freaking, it atones to the communication in Madagascar because the child or whoever stole it tossed it in front of a pharmacy. That pharmacy saw that it was foreigner's passport. So, of course, they're like, oh, crap, like (laughs) someone probably needs this. They looked inside the wallet and we had our ticket from Tuliar because we had driven all the way from the other part of the country. So Tana is like in the upper middle part of Madagascar, not the tip, but kind of down south a little bit. And Tuliar is in the southwest. They're a good 24-hour bus ride, Madagascar style, away from each other. And they saw our Tuliar ticket. They called the bus station asking, hey, have you seen these bazaars? Like, do you know who took your bus at this time? Because luckily we had that ticket in your wallet. They then called. They're like, oh, yeah, they were Peace Corps volunteers. Someone in the bus station knew what Peace Corps was. They called the Peace Corps station literally right after me and Carol had called, like, traumatized, being like, oh, my God, first we have to tell Peace Corps we were in, like, a red zone. Second, we have to tell them, like, our passports. Actually, no, we lied. Oh, we did lie. That's right. Oops. Hopefully they're not listening now. <laughs> <laughs> we did lie because we knew we had said that we were in Anana Kelly. It would be a bigger problem for us. So we said something that we were somewhere else. And obviously I did say that I got robbed, uh, but we never said we were in a red zone. Because it was right next door to a non-red zone. Exactly. So we could easily yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just remember, like, we called the security guy. Honestly, the security guy at the time wasn't the best at his job. But he was, like, trying to help us. And then he got a call from, like, the bus station in Tuliar saying, hey, uh, are you guys missing some passports? There's two of them at a pharmacy over here. And then he, like, called us right back. Like, literally, it was, like, 30 seconds after we had just called him saying, like, our passports are gone, trying to figure out, like, can we get a new one on rush from the embassy before we need to go on our vacation? And he was just like, hey, your passport's are over there. Go get it. And I was just like, oh, my God. That was, like, yeah. This whole thing happened within, like, no more than two hours. Yeah. From the time I figured out that my wallet was stolen to the time we got to the pharmacy and picked up my stuff. And actually, uh, they also called Sarah because on the ticket they had a phone number and it was Sarah's phone number, one of our friends. And they called her and then she called me asking me if I had missing, if I was missing something because she didn't know the story. Obviously, she was, she wasn't with us. And she's like, well, somebody called me and I kind of explained to her, as everything unraveled so quickly and in a, it was so wild. Long story short, we got our passports back and next day we were on our way to Mauritius. But it was like the craziest thing that ever happened. Yeah, we were definitely like given some 
guidance there of like <laughs> having some good like juju or whatever you want to call it of being like yeah you could still go on your trip but like you learned a big lesson during it like <laughs> <laughs> but for for me going to safety I will say I agree with Carol I felt very safe I know it's not the case for everyone because I remember hearing kind of horror stories of people in Madagascar where they would come to the capital for a conference of training that Peace Corps has and then they went back to their house and like all their stuff was gone. Like I have heard those stories and I am very happy to say like that didn't happen to me. So I remember there was only one thing that kind of made living at my site a little uncomfortable. It was within the first three months, someone had come into my home and stolen my smartphone off my kitchen table. And that's what made it a little uncomfortable was that someone who I knew and was comfortable enough to invite one into my house then took something from me and something of value. And I, I believe I know who did it, although she to the end of my service of being at that site swore that she never did. But she was the only one that actually had come during that time that would have been able to grab it because no one else was in my house before her. And other than like, because it was the same day that Tuvu and uh, one of the like Peace Corps leaders came to my site to just like check on it. And Tuvu is our APCD, which is like the leader of the health sector for like the staff members in Peace Corps. And so he was coming to just do like a site visit. That was the only one I ever got. I remember they said that they were supposed to do it like once a year or something. And that was like the only one I got at my three years. And I was lucky because I guess other people never even got one. But I just remember like it was right before they came my phone, I remember being on the table and then they came and visited and we were talking. I remember thinking a little strange, like, where's my phone? Like, I don't remember. Like, it was right here. And then, like, I had to check my calendar or something. And I was like, oh, it's okay. I'll just check it later. And then I never found my phone and it was gone. And that was the only time where I felt a little, like, saddened. But it, would, it didn't make me feel unsafe. Like, I definitely felt safe. And I remember there was, like, the robbers that could come in the night, like, in my community that were known. But, again, I never felt unsafe because my house was strong. Um, I knew I was protected by people who would protect me because like there's the dentist, there's the nurse, like though we were known to probably have more money, like I knew that people didn't mess with them and they would be there to help me if something ever did. And so for me personally, I felt like I was actually felt more safe in Madagascar than I did in the States, especially like as a woman, which is like, I feel like strange to say because I don't know if it's because I grew up with kind of paranoid parents in a sense where throughout college like you know sometimes you leave your college campus really late and so especially if you're walking to your car alone or something you're told like keep your keys out make sure you're like being alert look around like look at the back of your seat to make sure no one's in there make sure to look at your tires to make sure no one slashed them like you know anything to kind of put you in a precarious kind of situation at night as a woman kind of thing and I didn't have to do any of that in Madagascar I just remember feeling like safe to walk down the roads mind you we all went into our houses at like 7 p.m but like that was the culture and so like i didn't really have to worry about being outside <laughs> like alone kind of thing i just remember just having a sense of freedom that i never really got to experience in the states exactly where there's no guns mm -hmm. there are like of course like machetes and knives and stuff but people are like more like they're not out to kill people or at least it's not a huge thing like there's nothing of that kind of violence i feel like they're still so innocent unless somebody has a vendetta next against you you know something it has to be something extremely personal for you to actually come and attack you because there was a, a situation on my side where somebody actually got murdered and it was rather traumatic, but it was because it was extremely personal with that family. But like you said, people, they are, they are not known to be violent. Like they, nobody has guns unless you are a gendarme or like a, you know, a member of the army. Yeah, but it was just like this, I feel like it was also like a sense of innocence where people just didn't have that mentality in a sense. And I know like, in the past, smaller communities, like I'm sure the U.S. once upon a time was like that too at one point. But like, I think it's because like the population is still so low uh, and they just have their like culture and it's fine. And like, they're just so communal that it didn't really cross the minds of a lot of people. And it didn't cross mine while I was there either. Like I always felt safe. I knew I could walk down the street. People would be there. Like I never felt like I would get attacked or anything. Like that was never on my mind. And I just remember it was like a sense of relief rather than like from my home being in the States, constantly being reminded of like, remember to protect yourself. Remember to hold your like 
purse a certain way or don't look too like attractive in a sense or like you know like it's just like you have to take all these measures to like kind of blend in with the background in order to not stand out unless you want to it was like freeing for me like i don't know how to explain it other than that where i felt like safer and it was kind of and it just kind of blew my mind where people would like talk about things when i came back to the states and they're like oh you were over there like oh how like safe was it or like i don't know they kind of say it in a derogatory way and i was just like i felt more safe there than i did here like people here who are not mentally stable have guns like and it's you don't know like what's gonna happen so i was just like how can you judge a country that you don't know you've never been to and they're way more safe than it is here like i don't know that was like my experience where i definitely felt safe regardless of where i went in the country and i did travel a good chunk like i as i said i did try to stay at my site as much as possible but i did allow myself to explore as well and when i explored i felt safe wherever we went and i think it was also helped that you knew the local language um being able to speak Nelligasi definitely opened doors and a comfort to like a lot of people i feel so that definitely did help than being just like your average tourist. But I was diligent. Like I didn't let my guard down completely. Like I was resilient. I was diligent. I followed the rules. And that's also part of why I stayed safe as well. Like I did do that too. Yeah, as as long as you're, you know, you, you know your surroundings, you know where you are, you know who you are with, because I think that's very important too. Not only regarding your Malagasy friends or your host national friends, but also our Peace Corps volunteers, because even though we're all volunteers, there are some very responsible people out there that can put you in danger. So I think it's just recognizing those signs and being aware of where you're going, who you're going with, what time it is, you know, like analyzing all those things. Because like on my side, going back a little bit, relating social life and safety, on my side, we got lucky that we had a lot of concerts. Like even though it was a small town, it was big enough that a lot of people came for concerts. There was always some party going on. There is always like a lot of drinking happening. But even at those times, I never felt unsafe because I knew the people that I was with, like you said, I knew they were they were going to protect me and they knew that my life was valuable. And so we always stay away from like, yes, I went to every single concert on my side and I did party a lot and I did go out a lot and I party until like six, five in the morning. Uh, but I knew a whole, uh, who I was with and I knew how much I wanted to drink to be able to keep myself safe. Because I think that's another issue too. Drinking does become a big thing among uh, some volunteers and they do they do lose some control of themselves and that's when dangerous situations come into place. But as long as you're actually being very vigilant and understanding why safety is a big issue during training, then you will realize that you need to pay attention. You know, because even though the training about safety is repetitive and it's like, why do I need to do to know this? But once you are out there in your life as a volunteer, then you realize that those advices they are giving you is for a reason. They are not making this up. They are taking all they are taking all these measurements because people have lived those situations in the past. And I will say, like, I know that training can be very boring at times for those of you who are interested and will start your like pre-service training eventually. They can be boring. They're bombarding you with a ton of information. And at some points, things will fall through the cracks and you don't remember everything. And you're just like half asleep sometimes because it's just too much information. But do you know that like, though some of it seems like common sense, or you're just like, why are you telling me this or something? It is for a purpose. And it's because someone had in some point lived the experience that they're trying to prevent you from living yourself. And that's why, like, try to pay attention as much as you can. I do understand sometimes there's fatigue. You don't want to pay attention to that. I will tone. I was one of those people where, like, I would kind of daydream here and there because, like, it was just too much and I couldn't handle it. And I was bored out of my mind because it was just, like, a PowerPoint deck and them just reading verbatim what is there. And so I do understand and I can, like, sympathize with you of being bored at times. But do take it to heart and do at least try to, like, Take it that they are trying to protect you rather than control you. Because I think that is where it gets a little tricky as well, where a lot of Peace Corps volunteers, they're like, we're adults. We have our degrees. Like, we know how to take care of ourselves. But the the truth is, is like, yeah, sure, you may know how to take care of yourself, but you know how to take care of yourself in a different situation. And you're going to be thrown in an area that is completely different. Yes, people will be there to protect you once you make those connections. 
but don't take it for granted and like just be diligent and look around and stay resilient as much as you can. Um, I guess that would be my advice to you guys is like try to pay attention as much as you can, but also have fun. It's not like your life is going to be in danger or anything because as we said, like our safety felt for sure. And though we can only atone for Madagascar, a lot of other Peace Corps volunteers that we've talked to have good experiences as well. And none of them have really said that they felt scared or anything like that yet although if any rpcv is out there and wants to share those kind of experiences i would really appreciate to hear them because i do want another perspective and i do want to know kind of the horror stories that can happen not to scare anyone from wanting to do peace corps but to really show you guys that it does happen there are things that can happen i mean there are some traumas and there will be traumas for some individuals unfortunately uh, we are super excited that we got to 10 this idea started with Selena wanted to, to have a space to share and is growing into this project that we hope it lasts for a long time and we get to know a lot of people. And we decided to do this just because the two first episodes were about our experiences, but these questions are a little bit more into depth about certain things that we didn't really uh, talk about <laughs> during our tell. I will say though, um, for those of you, I don't think we'll have much show notes for this episode, but we do have a website. So it does have show notes of all the other episodes that we've done so far. And of course, all the future ones. The website is peacecoretalespodcast.weebly.com. Uh, each word is fully spelled out. So that's Peace Corps Tales Podcast dot Weebly dot com. Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. Uh, of course, uh, we are being traditional Peace Corps volunteers and trying to be frugal. And thus, we wanted a free website platform. So please excuse it not being a Peace Corps Tales Podcast dot com. And instead, it's a Peace Corps Tales Podcast dot Weebly dot com. Uh, please <laughs> don't judge us for that. <laughs> uh, otherwise, please, you could look on our Instagram where our email will be attached so if you have some questions for these milestone episodes that we're going to hopefully continue on uh, we would love to hear what kind of questions you have either as rpcvs just wanting to know a little bit more about our service or as potential peace corps volunteers wanting to know a little bit more about what to prepare for or expect or whatever uh again go with as little expectations as you can but our instagram is at pc tales podcast so that is PC Tales Podcast, and our Instagram will have our email attached, so that way you can communicate with us that way. Um, any RPCVs who are interested in being an interviewee for us, our interest form will be on our website as well. So go ahead and just click it, and it'll take you to a Google form. And once you fill it out, we'll communicate with you within an, a week or a couple weeks, depending on our schedules. Uh, but thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this kind of more of like a venting slash getting more down to the details of us reminiscing and talking about different subjects that we weren't really able to highlight during our own personal interviews. And remember that Peace Corps is the toughest job you will ever love. Velume Goodbye, Velume.